0: A halch sich gnikor erengetal schas bofweeks de jena her lock shin tap in a re er for kar Dear friends, may I begin by thanking Jane Almayer for her very kind introduction, and before I go any further, the warmest of congratulations to a former colleague, Professor Tom Bartlett, for his invitation to launch what is, without doubt, a most important contribution uh, to the writing of Irish history. It is a time when the importance of scholarly endeavour in the humanities is under pressure, In some quarters even disdained, certainly neglected. These four volumes stand as an intellectual riposte, as it were, to those who doubt the vital importance of the study of history in our universities, in our society, and as an informing principle on policy. I was kindly provided with galley proofs of the Cambridge History of Ireland about six weeks ago. I had a good go at most of the water. <laughs> and I only came back uh, from uh, the United States last night, and indeed it was very interesting. Uh, among the students I met outside Columbia University, had a pro- protest were some postgraduate history students. But may I say this, before I left, and indeed when I was looking again today preparing these remarks... I want to warmly congratulate all of the contributors on the rigor of the scholarship that is contained within its pages. I think uh, listening to this time period in which all of this is accomplished... And this of my compliments to Tom Bartlett and the other editors. It is a wonderful achievement to achieve so much in such a space of time. And I do want to commend the editors, Professor Smith, Olmar, Kelly and Bartlett, and all of the 103 contributors from 38 different countries, and indeed the Cambridge University Press not only for the quality of the essays contained within the volumes, but also, as I have just said, for the alacrity with which you set yourselves to the task. As a former lecturer myself, I know that the burdens and pleasures of teaching and administrative work are considerable. How often have I told myself I never regretted an hour's teaching, but I'm not so sure that I saw all the administrative work as either necessary or certainly desirable. <laughs> Indeed, I have to restrain myself. I had a section in this, this in this speech, which I've saved for another day, <laughs> about uh, the tyranny of metrics. But, uh, but it is no small thing. It is a great thing, as Starehe As a number of the contributors have noted, these volumes in their scale and ambition, they will no doubt inevitably find themselves being compared to the new history of Ireland, itself a remarkable project, which continues to stand as a literary landmark in the writing of Irish history. However, may I suggest that such a comparison might best be made so as to elucidate, if you like, the continuing and constant reinvention and revision of Irish historiography in the light of new methods, new sources, new approaches, and new theoretical frameworks, some influenced by the social sciences, others by historiographical approaches adopted abroad, and yet others by innovations undertaken by Irish historians themselves. One of the first and most striking illustrations of this reinvention was the decision by the editors to resile from the traditional dating conventions of such volumes. Any periodisation of history is, of course, reflective of the perspective of those demarcating the periods and a reminder that we often cannot, despite our best efforts, and sometimes not our best efforts, escape being induced to or seduced by grand narrative arcs of history. Nor indeed do all of the authors in these volumes resist making what will be to colleagues and readers some contrarian judgments regarding the role and nature of the great economic, political and social forces which have shaped human thought and action throughout history at different periods. A new history, of course, was itself revolutionary in its dating conventions. At the time of the publication of Volume 3, Early Modern Ireland, 1534 to 1691, my former colleague Nicholas Canning remarked that the use of that term was itself, as he put it, a landmark in Irish history, departing from the practice of demarcating periods by regnal years, by, for example, taking the period for the rise of the Tudor monarchs in 1485 to the death of the last Stuart Monarch, Queen Anne, in 1714. The use of the dates 1534 and 1691 was a declaration of particular Irish experience of the early modern period, one commencing with the Tudor conquest of Ireland and concluding with the victory of those forces which launched the glorious revolution in England. The advantage of eschewing any specific periodisation is illustrated again throughout the Cambridge history of Ireland, as the contributors have made ample use of the freedom offered to them to supply temporal interpretive frames that enlighten and facilitate the identification and explanation of broad economic, social, political and cultural processes. Indeed, if I may take one example, the question of periodization is confronted directly by Kieran Brady in his account of the strategy of the sixteenth century Tudor Court and its representatives in Ireland to draw attention to the false starts and inherent contradictions that characterized and ultimately sustained the recrudescence of English rule and Ireland and what an appropriate place we are in. (laughs) Equally and again, to take but one example, the transformation of the Irish demography and economy in the long 18th century, identified by David Dixon, enables a greater understanding of the changes undergone by an economy increasingly integrating into an Atlantic economy, while also subject to all the depredations and advantages brought on by the incessant maritime wars engaged in by what was still a precocious British Empire, with all their attendant effects on the structure of the Irish agrarian economy. We are reminded that it was this Atlantic world, a term which owes its origins, really, its usage to recent historiography, and its economic interconnections that source the first great wave of transatlantic immigration from our island in the form of often young, rural Presbyterian men leaving the Lennon Triangle around the Lagan Valley and the poorer counties of Ulster West and South of the Foyle to start new lives in the trades or some to become indentured servants in the colonies of North America. Let us also never forget either the contribution of Hart and Negri through their groundbreaking account of the centrality of slavery to this Atlantic economy and of the interaction between the growth of colonial slavery and of capitalism in its different forms and indeed and the culturally informed responses to it. The character of this 18th century migration from Ireland of perhaps up to a quarter of a million people has been cemented in the popular mind through the use of the term Scots-Irish, which, as Professor Patrick Griffin's contribution demonstrates, was itself a 19th century usage rather than one which might be familiar to the migrants themselves indicating not only the fluid character of migration within these islands and the new world colonies, but also something of the ideological environment in which ethnic categories were later constructed and mobilised. The reinterpretation of the nature of this wave of Irish migration, and I use the term Irish deliberately, is important not only for our own historiography but for historical debates within the United States where the emigration that followed and got the more is very often thought of in an excessively exclusive way perhaps as the foundational event in Irish America and of what we have come to know as the Irish diaspora a term that encompasses all those who claim Irish ancestry today with all the diversity and complexity that that implies, all £35 Last month I had the honour to perform the official opening of Coming Home, Art and the Great Hunger, an important exhibit currently on display in the Coach House here in Dublin Castle. Important both as an intervention in our cultural life and as a powerful expression of our enduring bond as Irish-America. I have to say, I revealed that in preparing my address for that event, I made extensive use uh, from the proof coffee of Volume (laughs) 3. In particular, the chapter on post-famine migration by Kevin Kenny, which provides not only a suitable coda to Peter Gray's chapter on the famine itself and Andy wilberg 's on the pre-famine economy and post-famine adjustment, but also to previous chapters on succeeding patterns of Irish migration. If I may say something of my own historical scheme and interpretive framework. I stated at the opening event one month ago that the Great Famine was a defining, if not the defining event in the making of modern Ireland, one that was formed and gave form to a distinctive Irish modernity, one that, if I may cite the late Brendan Bradshaw, confronts all of us with, as he put it, the catastrophic dimensions of the Irish past. I know that in this audience I cannot affect any neutrality as to our own historiography nor the revisionist controversies, our own history wars, which have broken out from time to time over the past 50 years. I think too many of you know me too well for that. My own academic work concentrated on the role of brokerage, clientelism and patronage in Irish political and social life, particularly that sourced around debt bondage. And after undertaking that research, I was and remained convinced... That the post famine adjustment and the development of Irish society and our economy since that time cannot adequately be explained through the prism of a now fairly well discarded modernization theory or by cleaving to any single unilinear model of development. The suggestion all those years ago that the credit transactions of the periphery were a crucial part of regional and peripheral political formation or context was rather cursorily dismissed by some of those attracted to the functional neatness of seeing, for example, the banking system as part of the inevitability of an accumulative capitalism. Yes, it was through the succeeding debates and disputations that I sharpened and indeed changed my own thinking. Looking back over the previous half-century of Irish history writing, and indeed comparing the new history with the Cambridge history, we witness a history that is constantly open to change, and we are the better for it, and we are the better for the fact that it is subject to frequent revisions." New paradigms of thought have restored those previously excluded as subjects of history, and in the Irish context this so often means women, and has brought new analytical categories, class and gender being the most prominent, into frequent use. The story of the Irish language has yet to achieve, I think, a fuller treatment. New interpretive frameworks, whether examining Irish history through the Atlantic world, European and imperial context are indeed through the prism of human interaction with the environment have provisioned us with new insights and for its part, the stage has admittedly gradually begun to fulfil its duty to make historical sources more accessible, more available, and often by funding specific projects. The digitalisation of the 1641 depositions has facilitated public access to records of an event which shaped Protestant fears of Catholicism well into the 18th century, as frequent republications of Sir John Temples, the Irish Rebellion, attest. Online access to the 1901 and 1911 census has fulfilled not only public curiosity, but provided an important insight into an Irish society on the verge of a revolutionary transformation, albeit a revolution forestalled. The online publication of the Bureau of Military Archives and the Military Services Pension Collection during the centenary year of the 1916 Rising, has not only allowed families, including my own, new insights into the lives of their parents and grandparents, but has offered new perspectives on the rising and war of independence, and what I regard as the punishing tragedy of the civil war, and also the very unsatisfactory early of the state in terms of reconciliation and the use of the pension structures as sources of additional pain to families and survivors from both sides. I hope that this commitment to admitting new material, developing new interpretations, I hope that it continues, and indeed that it continues to expand for so much of historical value, still lies undigitized within our National Archives and National library and in municipal church and private archives throughout the country. And then, as I have said, our histories, we must remind ourselves its the inheritance of all our people, its interpretation a matter for all of us, and a republic worthy of the name would seek to organize the material of history so as to make it accessible, as accessible as possible to all of the people and surely this is best achieved when the trading and confrontation of dubious certainties are referenced by the necessary courtesies of academic discourse. The historical profession itself has expanded, both in terms of the number of university and secondary school teachers of history and in terms of the number of history PhDs coming through our third-level institutions. At the same time, There has been, despite the prominence attached to history in our decade of commemorations, a diminution in the status of history and of the humanities more generally in our universities and in our education system. I know that I share your deep and profound concern with the new junior cycle in which history is now no longer a core subject. A knowledge and understanding of history is intrinsic to our shared citizenship, And to be without such knowledge is to be permanently burdened with a lack of perspective, empathy, and wisdom. And I really feel I find a contradiction in the decision, for example, to have an ethical approach to commemoration at the same time, to not make provision for the regular flow of the new perspective through the school system, through the teaching system. Moreover, to be without historical training, A careful and necessary capability to filter and critically interpret a variety of sources is to leave citizens desperately ill-equipped to confront a world in which information is increasingly disseminated without historical perspective or even regard for the truth. And I refer now not only to social media but to the news industry more generally. We may no longer assume that a historical literacy of any of the periods is a necessary requirement for advancement in what is an exceedingly monopolised form of the media. Within the universities, humanities have borne the brunt of the vicissitudes of the new funding models, as resources are increasingly channeled towards areas which it is suggested will yield a return, at least in the short term, to the university in terms of increased funding. I leave for another day a more extensive treatment of the bogus metrics that have been used as, in fact, a kind of a quasi-invention to facilitate much of this. Huge difference using the metrics as a source of knowledge. All of us have used metrics, as I did myself, in the debt studies... But metrics as a source of knowledge are very different from an invented metric for fashionable use to convince or, as I said, seduce uh, funding from those who don't understand what the subject is. <laughs> Much of this is facilitated, as I've said, by an abuse of metrics really as a kind of ideological fad that views the use of metrics of academic work not as a contribution or an instrument of knowledge but as a conforming bending of the knee to an insufficiently contested new utilitarian mediocrity. <laughs> I know... <laughs> I, I... I know... I know that it is younger academics who are now carrying the hardest consequences of this new model, they constitute a particular form of what is a new precariat, often employed in short-term, temporary teaching contracts. May I suggest that all of us who have been fortunate enough to be in or to have enjoyed senior academic positions, owe a duty of care and of solidarity to those at the beginning of their academic career, after the sometimes long, difficult, and lonely years of a PhD, theirs as a cause, requires persistent advocacy within the university and, sadly, throughout the world. There were among those I spoke, organising a demonstration as I entered the gates of past the library at Princeton University three days ago. These young historians are part of the future of history writing in this country, and today we celebrate an important addition... To the tradition of history writing in Ireland, one that I no doubt will be a reference work for many years to come. In time, if we continue to provide new opportunities for historians, amateur and professional, and if we continue to advocate for history as a crucial element of participatory citizenship, if we keep the study of Irish history alive and vibrant, a new generation, Glu Noah. Indeed, perhaps some of the younger historians in this room will come to revise anew these volumes, and that, I believe, will be the measure of our success in the coming years. treslim <makes> mile <music>